From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. Frederick Simmons, both of whom are research fellows in the Inquiry on the Societal Implications of Astrobiology here at CTI. Amory Reinen is a Protestant theologian who, after many years uh, teaching dogmatics in Brussels, is currently the Kairos Chair at the Catholic University of Paris. She was ordained in 1986 and has been a Commissioner of Faith and Order. She's also the past president of the French-speaking Paul Tillich Association. She recently published a, an edited volume t- titled Protecting Nature, Saving Creation, Ecological Conflicts, Religious Passions, and Political Quandaries. And I noticed uh, in looking at that volume that Andrea Piccini is also has an essay in there, so the two of you have worked together before your time together here at CTI. Frederick Simmons comes to us from Yale University, where he spent many years on the faculty, as well as uh, where he did his graduate education in the field of theological ethics. His research and teaching examined the moral implications of Christian theological commitments and the relationship between ethics aesthetics, and the life sciences. To begin, I'd like to uh, ask Anne-Marie about your own intellectual background. Uh, what led you to an interest in, in theology and to a career as a theologian? I've never really conceived of theology as a career. Things just seem to happen one after the other, mm-hmm. and it's only at some milestones that you reflect that it has now been 30 years almost <laughs> that I was ordained. Uh, so it was not a deliberate choice. I think... Um, uh, in the beginning, there was an interest in law, Roman law, and um, I'm still interested in, in legal thought, though from a safe distance, certainly not the nitty-gritty mm. of, for instance, constitutional law. Um, in that, of course, there is a, a shining uh, predecessor, uh, John Calvin. Mm. But I think it's more important for me to reflect on the fact that I was born in a, in a family where there were no more Christians, and that I became a Christian uh, uh, at the time of Enlightenment at 18, uh, after having worked through uh, Nietzsche, and uh, so I, I did not have to do that afterwards. Uh, so that was, the, that was I think, the, the turning point in my life, and um, then theology somehow flowed from the fact that people trusted me to do certain things, and having to do certain things, I had to train for them. So it was very much a uh, uh, an organic and a not a, a programmatic approach to... Uh, it was not even an approach, it was life. Hmm. Hmm. So how did, how did reading Nietzsche, how was that related to your own interest in Christianity? Well, I, I may have summarized uh, uh, excessively uh, a, a process which I think is very typical mm-hmm. Of uh, of teenagers of uh, uh, adolescents sure, sure. Uh, working through different options that are available, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I was very much attracted to the literary prowess mm-hmm. and uh, the beauty of the rhetoric of uh, of Nietzsche, and um, it it was certainly an existential decision that made me uh, a Christian. That well, I can't even say that uh, it. That also was not deliberate. It was uh, a conversion. So 
a certain amount of uh, uh, of mystery and enigma surrounds it because why me and not my siblings but we have had many years uh, including with my own parents uh, and with those siblings to talk about it and uh, uh, love has certainly prevailed over the uh, ideology with respect to Nietzsche it's interesting in the context of our inquiry on astrobiology to recognize that for Nietzsche, the life sciences prove one of the decisive uh, hinges for his criticism of Christianity. You mentioned his aesthetic and literary mm-hmm. gifts. Was the integration of life science and Christianity something that uh, struck you in your adolescence? No, I don't. I don't think I was at that point interested in what we would now call the, the dialogue between uh, religion and natural sciences, or faith and. Uh, uh, and science. Uh, I, I think I was attracted more by the prophetic accents. And in a way, of course, we now recognize that his Christianity is more authentic than some forms of Christianity with, which he attacked, uh, much like uh, certain books by, by Kierkegaard uh, show, in fact, what Christianity had lost and should retrieve. But that also, I think, is with much more hindsight than... I find it hard to retrieve the self I was at 18 or 16. (laughs) That's fascinating. Fred, same question. I'm interested in you, uh, your own background. Uh, What led you to interest in theology? Thank you. It's uh, been a circuitous route for me. Uh, I began my uh, collegiate education studying philosophy. And ultimately, I found the methodology attractive as I dabbled across humanities disciplines looking for uh, one that had what in my adolescence uh, I perceived to be rigor. Mm. But ultimately, as it was studied in my uh, college, it was driven by analytic concerns. And so though I appreciated the precision and the care, many of the subjects that we discussed seemed arcane. And so after college, I uh, found my way to South America, where I'd initially hoped to do development work, uh, but ultimately ended up teaching philosophy. And it was there that I was uh, teaching in religious institutions, and I found many of my students doing precisely the sort of development work that had eluded me uh, on their weekends. During the weeks, they were uh, studying theology and philosophy. Uh, In the Ecuadorian context, theology and philosophy, at least in religious schools, were often paired. And so that uh, brought together the methodological rigor that I appreciated from my undergraduate education with the kind of vivifying subject matter that uh, I had found to be somewhat lacking. I decided then to try and study that integration between philosophy and theology in a more formal way, and I returned uh, to do so at Yale Divinity School, and I later stayed on uh, to do a doctorate there in religious ethics thinking that that would be one way to try and bridge those interests between uh, theology on the one hand and philosophy on the other. And has your interest in in analytical philosophy uh, prevailed? Do you still find there a rigor that's lacking in other schools? That's a hard question to answer in a generic way. I think that, uh, like all of us, I'm a uh, product of my training, and so I do still aspire to uh, clarity, coherence, and precision. But in ethics, it's interesting because I think that the split within ethics between, say, continental and uh, Anglophone analytic uh, philosophy is less pronounced within uh, the ethics domain. 
within religious ethics, to be sure, uh, there are, I think, noticeable um, resemblances uh, that can constitute a certain kind of loose school where you do uh, get some of that difference. But I think, in fact, part of what ultimately led me to ethics was a sense that that sharp divide, that sometimes sharp divide between analytic and continental ways of approaching, say, metaphysics and epistemology, is just uh, far less pronounced when it comes to mm -hmm. ethics. And so there's a way of getting some of these existential concerns that you mentioned that are so vivid in someone like a Kierkegaard or a Nietzsche, uh, paired with some of the uh, conceptual care that's characteristic of uh, 20th century Anglophone philosophy, um, and then when it's in an ethics ambit, at least by aspiration, it's things that are going to be of existential significance. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to your point about Ecuador. So were you, you were teaching there? Were you teaching in Spanish? I was. Okay. And so how development work? You, you went to do development work, and how long were you there? What happened exactly? <laughs> well, this is now a long time ago, something <laughs> like you recalling your adolescent encounter with Nietzsche. Uh, but uh, I was there for more than two years, uh -huh. and um, <laughs> I, uh, I went down hoping to do um, more direct sort of service work, development-oriented sort of work, uh -huh. uh, but it, it proved difficult to find in-country. But I did have this degree in philosophy, and so I uh, fell back on that ultimately. Uh -huh. And I found uh, some of the work in education to be in the vein of development sort of broadly construed. Um, but having spent time uh, just prior in an academic setting, I was sort of keen to be um, out of the classroom and engaged more directly. Um, and thus, seeing the kind of work that my students did, many of whom were either women religious or uh, students in a novitiate process looking to become uh, either lay or ordained uh, ministers, um, their work on the weekends was devoted to urban and rural ministry. And the sort of things that they were doing um, were a very rich complement to the kind of academic work and ethics we were doing in the classroom. And they were very uh, generous in their invitations for me to observe and in some cases become part of their uh, ministerial work. And it was really those experiences that uh, ultimately spurred me to um, pursue theological education. One of the benefits of being here at CTI is the chance, I think we would all agree, of working with a, an international group of scholars. Anne-Marie, you're Dutch by background, but, but you're teaching in France now, where I, I think you've lived for a number of years. And I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about what the theological landscape in France looks like, particularly as a Protestant theologian. Well, first, uh, I want to add to the fascinating story of yeah. uh, Fred's uh, earlier years uh, that I also had a chance to uh, to work in Spanish for a brief lapse of time mm -hmm. in Cuba. And so Cuba has always been very important for me, uh, mm. the Protestant schools there. And uh, it, it, that has been um, a very gratifying experience. And I watched the uh, the birth of a new Cuba uh, with great trepidation. Uh, now, about my languages, yes, you can perceive by my polder English uh, where I was born. Uh, it's not just my background. I am Dutch. My, right. Both my parents, my passport, etc. Sure. are Dutch. Sure. <laughs> uh, but it's true that I've lived in France now for many years. And uh, uh, France is sometimes difficult to understand. Uh, because of the uh, very marked uh, uh, turn 
which goes back to the revolution, uh, towards a, uh, a secularist understanding of, uh, of state and uh, a nationhood and religion within it. Uh, where, of course, nowadays Jewish and Muslim citizens point out that there are also internal contradictions there because although it's a, uh, um, a, a state where the separation between uh, a government and uh, established religion is very uh, marked, yet there is a historic presence of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so you will have state funerals uh, in, 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 in churches and um, the holidays are still a totally Christian Catholic, I would even say, since the August 15th is a, is a big holiday. Um, so those are holidays and our fellow citizens now ask, uh, why not also have Yom Kippur and, and, uh, and uh, the Aid uh, as holidays? Um, well, within that very lay Catholic country, uh, I have been very uh, happy and fortunate to uh, teach as a Protestant in a, um, uh, a Catholic university uh, where many disciplines are taught. Uh, of course, most of our degrees are not canonical degrees, but some are. So the heart of the university is still the theological school, uh, which is a very large, in fact, the largest uh, French-speaking Catholic uh, uh, school in the entire world. And so it's a very global school. We're very fortunate to have uh, very good students from uh, from Asia, from Africa, from really all over the globe. I'm sure it's difficult to generalize, but I'm curious uh, if you could nonetheless give some sense for the sort of interest that your students have. Is it uh, academic in the main? Is it, uh, in some cases, ministerial? Just in the French context, I'd be uh, keen to know more about what the next generation uh, aims to do with a theological education. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think um, it's very like uh, seminaries and uh, Protestant uh, schools of religion in that nowadays one gets a very mixed bag of motivations and of backgrounds. Uh, we do get a fair amount of people who really come only for the uh, academic uh, uh, challenge and interest. And then you have people who are there to be trained. In our case, not so much uh, for the ministry because they already have uh, those degrees. They already are nuns or are priests. Uh, they do uh, graduate degrees, so they will often go back to teaching themselves in their countries of origin. Uh, so it's it's a very uh, highly qualified uh, group of people. So both of you are fellows in the current inquiry, which is on the societal implications of astrobiology. And in looking at both of your projects uh, before this this conversation, I noticed that the theme of cosmos came up in both of them. Anne-Marie, yours is titled Cosmos or Chaos, Theology for the Space Age. And as I'll say in a minute, Fred also talked a bit about Cosmos in his uh, paper for the for the fall colloquium. Um, Emery, I'd like to ask you what led to your interest in in astrobiology and the broader issue of, of Cosmos and how it relates to 
theology. Yeah, thank you, Josh. It's good to have this kind of question from time to time. Um, in my new project, there is no longer a an opposition or antinomy between cosmos and uh, chaos. Hmm. First of all, because I think chaos is part of cosmos. Hmm. Cosmos should be a very large uh, uh, concept where uh, also death and destruction uh, is part of, uh, of the story. And secondly, because I'm now looking for uh, a project that is um, uh, that would be called The Life We Seek, uh, but which is about space, inner space and outer space. And uh, before I run out of your patience, I would like to say something about inner space. Because it is not natural in a way. It wasn't taken for granted that we should think about ourselves, our brains, our minds, or our souls, in terms of space. You could very well just talk about processes, chemical processes, or uh, physiological processes, or organs, like biological. Why is it that there is this long, long tradition of speaking about our mindfulness as a space? So the inner space, the idea of uh, uh, inhabitation, that it can be inhabited, by a good spirit, also by evil spirits, is for me really a stepping stone on um, what I call an intimation of an interface with the space outside, outer space. Uh, that's really what I'm looking for, because I've done some work on sacred space, holy cities, for instance. Mm. And now for me, the cosmos is the larger space which is connected to our inner space because it is from that inner space that we have projected onto the heavens as a screen, as it were. It is a screen of our dreams, of our fears. If you think about uh, astrology, I, don't, I know you're not supposed to think about astrology, <laughs> But if we did for a moment uh, contemplate that, as it were, older sister of astronomy, in the beginning they were just the same, it was stargazing. But it also if you think about constellations and the names that we give to stars and to planets, they all really show that they come from an inner space, they come from human beings, so puny dots though we may be, uh, we have given shapes and names uh, to the cosmic phenomena around us. And that, that will be my, uh, my starting point henceforth. That's fascinating. Thanks. Were you critical of the notion of um, characterizing the interior life in spatial categories? Because I wonder whether the notion of inner already connotes a spatial um, frame of reference. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, of course. No, I'm not critical. I'm, oh. I'm grateful for it. It's true. So I'm, I'm working with inner, outer, and deep space. Uh, because I see the trend in the NASA literature. Uh, uh, there is um, a passage, a transition from outer space or space and uh, deep space. And I, I, if I understand it well, but you will correct me, I'm sure... 
if needed, is deep space is the space beyond our, our own galaxy. And we have now, we, well, NASA has with our help, we have now ventured in, in, into uh, the deep space beyond uh, the, the boundaries, beyond the belt of asteroids uh, of our own solar system. Turning to Fred, uh, your project at CTI examines, as I understand it, the relationship between ethics and aesthetics. A lot of the field that has now come to be known as the field of religion and ecology, or more particularly Christianity and ecology, has concentrated on what Christianity might contribute to the environmental movement. I think the reasons for this are evident in as much as perception of environmental uh, crisis is becoming ever more palpable. Nevertheless, I've had interests in trying to complement that direction of inquiry and instead trying to foreground uh, some of the lessons that the life sciences and ecology in particular might hold for Christian belief. I think one of the ways to perceive intersections between Christian thought and ecology is to do so at the level of uh, cosmology or what in a Christian idiom might be considered a doctrine of creation. So part of my interest in cosmology is because I find it a useful uh, bridge to make Christianity and ecology interlocutors rather than um, simply having a more instrumental approach to Christianity as a way of motivating, say, environmental concern and protection. Once you think about uh, the implications of the life sciences for cosmology, I think it invites Christians to um, examine ways in which their doctrine of creation was predicated upon uh, other understandings of the natural world that contemporary life science have complemented and in some respects uh, come to supplant. And I think that when you realize some of the changes that ecology invites to Christian conceptions of creation, you come to recognize that they have implications for other aspects of Christian thought. For example, Christians have long had evaluative commitments with respect to the natural world. For example, that uh, the creation that uh, God makes is uh, affirmed as good and dissociated from evil. Hence, as you change your understanding of the nature of that creation, it's likely to have implications for Christian understandings of the content of both goodness and of evil. These categories are, of course, central to ethics. They're also of import to other um, principal Christian commitments. For example, uh, salvation is generally understood in a uh, Christian framework as being good news and to be a matter of delivery from evil. Uh, naturally, then, if you change what you understand evil to be, delivery from evil correspondingly comes to have a different sort of content. Thus, uh, these changes to understandings of creation may seem to be rather peripheral to Christian conviction, but I contend that, in fact, by having these implications for both ethics and conceptions of salvation, it turns out that the life sciences may have uh, decisive contributions to make to contemporary Christian self-understanding. I know you gave a paper in Toronto last week at the Society of Christian Ethics. Were you talking about this theme? I missed your paper, but was and did you have a good response from from folks uh, there? Uh, I was on a related topic, uh, and it was the role of cosmology and Christian ethics generally. Mm-hmm. I think uh, much of the field of religion and ecology, Christianity and ecology, was spurred by uh, comments uh, made in the 60s that wanted to associate Christianity with the environmental crisis. 
as we know, uh, that was a decade when many were coming to awareness of the deleterious implications of pesticides, some of the uh, land use consequences of a burgeoning population, and uh, really decades of um, minimal environmental regulations. And as scholars cast about for understandings of the deeper causes of uh, these environmental problems, some that proved most influential contended that it was a prevailing Judeo-Christian worldview that desacralized nature and uh, advocated a strongly anthropocentric conception of human beings' relationship vis-a-vis non-human creation that was ultimately at the root of our contemporary environmental crisis. Now, naturally, by framing the question in that way, folks sought to respond to it by uh, either challenging or uh, refining the sorts of uh, cosmologies that were said to be uh, at the root of that crisis. And thus, by thinking of this as a function of broad uh, religious worldviews, the field responded by uh, worldview development and worldview critique. In the last six or seven years, uh, the pendulum has swung somewhat, and some of the leading uh, advocates of the next generation of religious ethics, environmental ethics in particular, have become critical of this concentration on cosmology. And what I tried to uh, suggest in Toronto was that perhaps there's a middle ground between this initial generation that saw cosmology as being decisive, and in some cases perhaps even nearly sufficient uh, for grounding and even uh, honing environmental uh, ethics. Um, on the one hand, to this uh, second generation that has seen uh, cosmology as at best a distraction and probably uh, more often, in fact, uh, a temptation that proves uh, counterproductive, I wanted to suggest that there's appropriate ways uh, to invoke cosmology, not to see it as sufficient, but also not to see it as inherently um, baneful. Yeah, I would like to suggest that um, cosmology is is an interesting common ground uh, between uh, today's scientists and today's theologians and uh, faithful, uh, because it seems that we all have a cosmology. Now, it still is useful to to remind ourselves that uh, one group is more concerned with fact and one group is more concerned with meaning, uh, but we seek truth. Uh, but there are different languages for truth. And uh, one of the, the grave misunderstandings concerning uh, the Bible, scriptures in general, uh, was at a time when fact became more available and more important, uh, that the scriptures were thought to be uh, a competing source of fact. When in fact today... Um, Many astronomers, and certainly in the field of astrobiology, I'm surprised to see that meaning, the quest for meaning, uh, is is very much uh, on the forefront. Uh, at least it is no longer uh, 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 an object for ridicule. Uh, and I think things have changed since uh, Einstein uh, was almost alone in venturing uh, axioms that had to do with meaning, with beauty, and he was uh, very much scorned for it uh, by fellow scientists. 
So there is a common ground, which is uh, cosmology. And I think there is the need to keep our trades uh, certainly separate uh, because we, we don't have a, a, a grand unified theory that will take in both uh, natural science and uh, the humanities. But what we certainly must learn from each other is um, uh, that when we speak about facts that we are factual, that we seek to be uh, objectively true, um, and that we are informed about latest developments uh, in the lab and in the observatory, and that, on the other hand, uh, uh, the specialists who are driven by, by the need to gather facts are open to meaning and to the diversity of a truth that, uh, uh, that the other trade, as it were, uh, specializes in. So n not to seek for a uh, easy um, 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 concordism of, of the discourses, but also not think that they have to be parallel because it's one humanity and uh, one planet Earth. And uh, as far as we know, only one place in the universe that supports uh, life as we know it, both uh, the vegetable and uh, the animal kingdom, and in, uh, included uh, uh, the animal that is a human being. Emory, you, you noted one place where you've sort of changed your mind or developed your thinking uh, since you've been here at CTI, you know, the it's not chaos uh, or cosmos, but cosmos and chaos. Is there anything else about that in your own research in astrobiology that has particularly surprised you or that where you've changed your mind in the last few uh, months? Well, it was surprising to me. It, it may be very obvious to many people, but uh, one lesson that, that one learns in reading the literature about astronomy and specifically astrobiology is the um, the vastness of the time scale, and um, it's true that in theology you you can get away uh, with working in well, basically in maybe twenty uh, twenty five centuries, and uh, all of a sudden to have to think about um, the archaeology of life on Earth and the distances and. Uh, really the, the, the dwindling tininess of, of our little history uh, is, is really humbling and I think very good. So that I will certainly integrate into, uh, into, into my, the discipline of, of thinking. It has to become second nature, uh, although the mathematics are still hard to grasp, uh, I confess, uh, of light years. Uh, but where we're always being pushed further to new frontiers, to new horizons. And I think that is the very upbeat message that that, uh, that I find heartening in uh, the NASA programs and which is in a way uh, very, how shall I say, uh, convergent with, with Christian uh, hope, uh, the fact that it's God is always bigger, larger than what we had thought, what we had formerly known. Same question to you, Fred. Um, what's been the biggest surprise in your own research since you've been here, not only doing your own research, of course, but also in conversation with uh, all the scholars who are here this year as fellows? 
it's hard to identify just one. Uh, several things come to mind. One would be uh, in our first uh, symposium together, I was struck by the instability and uh, vagueness of several of the fundamental concepts at the core of uh, astrobiology. I was aware that life was a difficult uh, thing to define, but nonetheless uh, important to try to get some grasp of in as much as a search for life um, is in part motivated by an attempt to uh, expand our notion of what life is, but of course um, such a search also presupposes some sort of provisional understanding of what it is such that it could be uh, recognized when found. Within that, uh, I generally understood life uh, as being a combination of matter, energy, and information. And I've um, been daunted to learn just how difficult it is to get uh, precision on what the notion of information would be in a biological context. Less concretely, uh, interactions with the fellows has also helped me rethink a little bit of the methodology in my own work. Uh, much of my work has been conceptually driven, perhaps even at a typological level, and it's been interesting to interact with scholars from other fields who uh, proceed perhaps with more uh, philological rigor or uh, attention to history and tradition, and so want to proceed more inductively from text in an explicit way. Um, so understanding some of the uh, limitations and peculiarity of my own methodology has been possible by having just a set of interlocutors that um, do things differently. As I was listening to Fred, um, I, I, I was thinking also about the fact that the uh, astrobiological endeavor uh, is not only about uh, finding life or even for some intelligent life uh, uh, in in the vast universe, it's also been, I think, a search for understanding life on Earth. And the question then is not: is the experiment failed? Uh, an experiment is, is never failed. You, it's not because you get a negative answer that the experiment is uh, failed. It's that is also an interesting answer. No, it's also good to know. Yeah. But uh, so even if for five more generations we will not find uh, microbial life and even less uh, uh, conscious life outside uh, in the universe, it, it will have taught us to look at life on, on Earth. For instance, finding life in extreme situations uh, and that is really because I think the, the scientists were looking at Mars and then they thought that maybe in some deep thermal vents in the deep ocean there might also be uh, there might be forms of life that we now call extremophiles so it has been I think a very enriching uh, inquiry um, and also, as, as Fred just said, life is very fuzzy because one thing that one associates with life is uh, 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 phenomena that are dynamic. And we're now learning that you get earthquakes and volcanic activity 
and tidal waves, tidal strength, uh, in places that are officially not alive, yet they are very dynamic. So that is also uh, pushing at, at the, the definition of life. Fascinating in that regard. Uh, the planetary science component of astrobiology has underscored the fact that tectonic activity seems to be, um, if not necessary, then nonetheless highly conducive to the conditions that make life possible, which is an interesting realization in as much as for much of Christian history, uh, tectonic activity has spawned some of the most vexing instances of theodicy. Uh, when you think about earthquakes or volcanoes or other things of that sort, it's interesting to put it in that planetary science context where uh, these things that seem to be just gratuitously destructive on a planetary scale at cosmic time spans uh, apparently have constructive roles to play in creating uh, habitable zones. So one more question I want to ask of each of you before we close is about what we can hope for. Anne-Marie, you in one of the, the colloquial meetings, I thought very helpfully back in the fall, mentioned a passage that's near the end of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, where he argues that all philosophy ultimately aims at three questions. What can I know? What should I do? And what may I hope? And that got me thinking, what should we hope for from with regard to astrobiology? We can speculate as to whether there is life beyond Earth. Uh, some, some may uh, think there is, some may think there isn't, but do you think we should hope there is? I want to answer that question first pragmatically to say that yes, because it would be a return on investment mm -hmm. if the answer is positive, if we do find uh, life in some shape mm -hmm. or form. Secondly, I want to sound uh, a cautionary note. No, I don't think that that is a good idea if it's going to feed escapism of a healthy, uh, I'm sorry, a wealthy handful of people who put the planet on a suicide course, uh, on a kamikaze course, and say, well, we always have a spaceship mm -hmm. uh, to uh, procreate uh, humanity in some far-flung planet. So we have to learn to live where we are planted, mm -hmm. uh, which is here on Earth. Um, I do think that it would be very interesting uh, for theology, as for all other disciplines, if we were to find life elsewhere. And in a way, um, theology has been criticized as being extremely anthropocentric, but it, it would reconnect with the, the dimensions of theology that were always aware of the, uh, the God who is larger than our motives and who includes the animal kingdom, the beauty of plants and of rocks. And Leviathan is, in a way, a shorthand for this absurd abundance of creation. And why not, indeed, uh, think that it, it does not stop uh, on this planet, but it's also present in so many other uh, places in the universe as we do not know it yet? Huh. I don't know whether we should hope uh, for it. Um, I do hope that we find it. And I also would, I think, close in a sort of pragmatic vein, which is to say that uh, the study has only redoubled for me the sense of the preciousness of life on this planet. 
I am hopeful that were life to be found, it would have the potential to further stimulate our society's recognition of the fragility, the beauty, the value, the history, the contingency, the grandeur of this web of life of which we're a part. Hopefully that would have salutary effects with respect to our relationship to that life. But at the very least, I think it would uh, enrich our understanding uh, of ourselves and of um, this planet we inhabit. I think that's a good place to stop. I want to thank both of you for being here uh, together and for talking about your own research and for being on the podcast. So thank you. Thank and you, Josh. I, I want to take this opportunity to thank our webmaster, uh, Josh, you really are a great uh, uh, stimulus for all of us because you you have so many thoughtful questions for us and and not only questions but you know so much so it's always a great pleasure to uh, to be in conversation with you great. and to be invited with you is an honor. Many thanks. It's an honor to work with 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 all of you.